It's the front half of what we celebrate as Easter, because obviously if he hadn't been dead, he wouldn't have been raised. And the first half has significance too, because it's our salvation. Paul says the death of Jesus doesn't mean anything if it's not for the resurrection, but together, there's nothing like it in the history of religions. Welcome to Life, Love, and Family. Good Friday, an amazing day on the Christian calendar. Today, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Christ. There's a peace I've come to know Though my heart and flesh may fail There's an anchor for my soul I can say it is well Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed The victory is won He is risen from the dead And I will rise When He calls my name No more sorrow No more pain I will This is Bill Scott, along with Dr. Tim Clinton. Welcome to Life, Love, and Family. On this Good Friday, you know as well as I do, a huge event in the history of the world and a big day for the Christian calendar. Bill, this weekend, over 2 billion Christians around the world are commemorating and they're celebrating the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. Today on our program, we're going to ask questions like, why did Jesus have to die? Did he really die? What kind of evidence do we have on the resurrection of Christ? And what does it mean if I believe that he is risen? And Bill, our special guest, there's nobody better on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Today, Dr. Tim, we have one of your friends and colleagues. Dr. Gary Habermas is one of the world's leading authorities on apologetics and the resurrection. He's dedicated his professional life to the examination of the relevant historical, philosophical, and the theological issues surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I love this because his extensive list of publications and debates provides a thorough account of the current state of the very issues that we're going to talk about today. If there was ever the man to approach this subject. Gary, thanks for stopping by Life, Love, and Family on this special day. No problem, fellas. This is, uh, like you say, an exciting weekend. It's my favorite weekend of the year. Gary, why did Jesus have to die? Well, you know, to me, it's not so much our being able to explain why he did or whatever. The way I think of it is like this. God decreed from way back in the Old Testament, as we learn, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And for whatever reason, God chose that in his economy, that's the way it would have to be. And his son was sinless. So just like uh, as it was uh, typified in the Old Testament by the lamb without blemish, uh, Jesus 
in effect, was a human without blemish, the only one ever. And he's the only one who could die for our sins. That's what this weekend's all about. But not just his death, but most of all, his resurrection, the most triumphant event in history, whereby God indicated that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and Christianity's true. In Isaiah 53, Gary, it says he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. goes on to say that he was despised and we esteemed him not. And surely how he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But here it is, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. What does that mean, Gary? Well, I think it's, in a way, whenever I hear language like that, be it from Scripture, like uh, what you just read, or a sermon, I think about how sobering this event is. We dare not ever try to preach a Christianity which has left out this suffering of Jesus. In this day and age, it's not popular to say that somebody had to die, or people talk about the Father doing something immoral. I mean, it's just no such thing. We also have to remember that Jesus went willingly. So it's the front half of what we celebrate is Easter, because obviously if he hadn't been dead, he wouldn't have been raised. And the first half has significance, too, because it's our salvation. Paul says without the back half, the front half doesn't mean anything. The death of Jesus doesn't mean anything if it's not for the resurrection. But together, there's nothing like it in the history of religions. Gary, the agony that Jesus suffered, I know this is Good Friday, and many slow way down and just think about what he went through. Why the death on the cross? Why did he have to go through such a gruesome death? Yeah, great question. I don't think there's any logic that says it has to be this and nothing else. What I mean is if the Lord had arranged it some other way, of course, there would be shedding of blood to fulfill the Old Testament type. But the way it came down, I mean, you got to think if you were one of the disciples, it would just be a huge shock. I mean, when Jesus predicted several times that he would rise from the dead, they didn't believe, they didn't understand, they thought it was something else, and then all of a sudden he's torn from them and... You know, Paul describes it as a stumbling block to Jews because the Old Testament law tells us that cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. In effect, that's what Jesus was doing. But God turned it around with the victory of resurrection. So it's just the low moment followed by the highest moment in our history. Often people talk about that passage out of Philippians 2 where it says that Christ left the glories of heaven and became our Redeemer by the way of the cross. And that he did not have to do this, but in sovereign love, he reaches toward us, Gary. What does it mean that he emptied himself? (laughs) If you put five theologians in a room, you might get three different responses on that one. But to me, I think that the text there says that although he existed in the form of God, and the Greek word for form, I mean, English, form doesn't mean much. I mean, here we roughed in this house. That, that's a form of a house over there. But in Greek, the primary meaning of this word uh, morphe means the essence of, the nature of. So the contrast of Philippians 2 is between this person, Jesus Christ, who, though he had the essence of God, very next verse, took on the essence of a servant. So you've got morphe of God, next verse, morphe of a servant. So right there is what Christianity is about. When we say the God-man, it'd be hard to pick a couple verses from Scripture that say it any better than those right there. The death of Jesus. Some have questioned whether or not he died. Right. 
Gary, how do you know that he died? If somebody asked me that, I would say that we have evidence that comes in from a wide variety of directions. Let me take the three best-known skeptical theologians in the U.S., all pretty far to the left. Two of them, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, they say almost the same comment. They say the fact that Jesus died by crucifixion is as well established as any fact in the ancient world. Now that's an incredible statement, as well established as any fact in the ancient world. Now, one of the reasons for that is because we have a fair amount of medical information on what happens. I mean, people were crucified as recently as World War II, and we have a lot of information about what happened, so much so that about 25 years ago, an article on this subject was published in the journal of the American Medical Association. So that's a medical look. Now, on the other side, the third skeptic, Bart Ehrman, who's probably the best-known skeptic in America today, former evangelical, and now, as he calls himself, an agnostic leaning toward atheism. And he says the best way to get an event is to look at independent sources. How many independent sources do we have? And in the ancient world, two, two sources is plenty to establish many events, and many events are established on one source alone. Well, Barterman, the skeptic, counts 11 different historical sources, early sources, for the death of Jesus. So you put all of that together, the medical reasons, the historical reasons, it's quite a combination that makes even skeptics say this death of Jesus, no matter what we might hear popularly from people, deserves no doubts whatsoever. Gary, I know you've spent a lot of time studying about the Shroud. Can you explain some about that evidence and why it's significant? You know, you started the program by giving a little bit of a biography, and when I started going through doubts, in my teen years, and these lasted for uh, 10 or, or more years, family, friends would start bringing things to my attention that they thought were good evidences. And they'd say, well, look at this, archaeology. Whoa, look at this, creation evolution. Don't you think there's some good evidence here? And one of the things that was brought to my attention by a friend was the Shroud of Turin. And I read about it for the first time in the late 60s, and I thought, Wow, this is really incredible. It just it seems like there's checks and balances for almost every question you can ask. Well, now, many, many years later, I've put a lot of time into studying this subject, too. A couple co-authored books with one of the fellows who was involved in the research. And I tell people, I'm not here to say that the Shroud has to be the burial garment of Jesus. I try to be cautious, but... There are sure a lot of indications that it is what it is, including the most popular view of what causes the image on the shroud, which looks like two different kinds of radiation coming out of a dead body. Now, how do you get radiation coming out of a dead body? Well, if it turns out to be Jesus, who the the man buried in the shroud was definitely crucified, now you've really got a mystery on your hands. If he's dead, he's in a state of rigor mortis, the man in the shroud, that is, and it looks like x-rays are coming out from the body onto the cloth. There's nothing like it on earth. It is the most studied archaeological artifact, religious or secular, in human history. Gary, have you had a chance to see it? I have not. My co-author was part of the investigation team, and he spent days with it. He asked me to come aboard with him and co-author these two books, and my job was sort of to read the data and say all right, what does this mean in terms of historical possibilities? Who could this be? How close is it to the death of Jesus? What does it say about resurrection? So 
I basically was asked to take the data and make comments about its meaning. Gary, if someone was to walk up to you on the street and say, how do you know that Jesus has risen from the dead? How can we say with boldness, confidence that he has risen from the dead. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said, if Christ be not risen, everything we're believing is basically baloney. I tell people, how far do you have to read in the New Testament before an author says, dot, 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 then faith is vain? Faith is how we come to Christ, and so how does faith become vain? And I think Paul's saying, if it's not grounded. The resurrection is what grounds our faith. It's what gives us reasons. To believe God doesn't shy away from providing those, whether it's Paul on the way to Damascus or whether it's Thomas who required a sign, James, the brother of Jesus, who in all probability was an unbeliever until he met the risen Jesus. I mean, these are special kind of skeptics. A, a brilliant thinker, Paul, who was a persecutor, thinking he was doing God a favor, he tells us, to persecute these folks, to a James who was part of the family members in Mark 3, who tried to get Jesus out of the way because he was embarrassing the family. And then all of a sudden, surprise, he goes from thinking his brother's got mental problems. I mean, really, the Greek says, in two minds, so he's got issues, all the way to being Lord and Savior when James comes to believe and becomes the pastor of the largest church in the ancient world. It's a beautiful combination of accounts that come to this. Personally, I think, to answer your question, I think the best evidence, the answer for me, when I finished my doctoral dissertation, because I did it on the resurrection, was to argue that even on the skeptics' information, even on the skeptics' data, if we use, so to speak, the skeptics' Bible, if we used only their data, we have enough to show that Jesus was raised from the dead. So I think we have reason to think that Jesus was raised even on the skeptical view, and that's powerful. I think people are surprised when they realize that you can prove the life and death of Christ by not using our Bible. Yeah, there are some ancient historical sources, non-Christian sources, that report the deity of Christ, report that he was raised from the dead. Some of them are pretty obscure, but skeptics don't mind you using the New Testament. And in fact, I tell people, if you don't bring it up, they will, because they will use Scripture. The only catch is they use it differently than believers do. They don't just cite a text because they think it's authoritative. They only cite texts which they think can be shown to be true. And so that's what I was referring to a moment ago. Those are the texts I use, their texts in effect, the ones that can be shown to be true. Those are the texts I use to show that Jesus was raised from the dead on their understanding of Scripture. I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians 15, Gary, for a moment. Sure. Uh, Paul says, but he is risen. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also now in Christ shall all be made alive. And they would greet one another, Gary, and say, He is risen. And they would answer, How? He is risen indeed. Mm. It's everything, Gary, isn't it? It is. It sure is, Tim. I mean, I speak on this topic thousands of times. I teach an entire PhD course on this topic at Liberty, and I do it at other schools. And so you'd think, Oh, come on, it's got to get a little bit dulled. But it doesn't. No matter how often I do it, it's exciting, and I give God the praise for the fact that I get fired up so that when I'm done lecturing for the 1500th time, 
I'm thinking, this is really incredible. You know, many years ago when I was just kind of coming out of my doubt, I was walking around the house and I was considering certain evidences. And I said to myself, wow, he really is raising the dead. Well, I knew that, but I mean, that's how it hits me sometimes just to say, look at this. Can you beat this? I tell people, what if God gave us this kind of evidence, but for an unimportant area, I mean, non-central area of the faith, and then ask us to take the gospel, the deity, death, resurrection of Jesus, totally on faith. But he doesn't. And for those who need this sort of thing, he gives the best evidence at the most central point. And as I tell my students regularly, if all we knew was the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if that's all we knew, that he's the son of God who died on the cross for our sins, who was raised from the dead, the amazing thing is Christianity stands. So when students go away to secular schools and the polls say that 60 to 90 percent of them lose their faith when they go to uh, these universities, it's almost always because somebody hits Christians at a periphery point, or maybe doesn't even hit them at all, just makes fun of them, you know, peer pressure, emotions, that kind of stuff. But if all we know, if we keep this close, if we have reasons to believe that Jesus died, was buried, raised again, he's the Son of God, I might not be able to answer all the questions. Christians themselves differ from other Christians, but I could know that Christianity is true. There's just nothing like it. Gary, the sayings on the cross, like, woman, behold thy son. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he screamed, it is finished. What did that mean, Gary? Those are amazing. I just finished speaking this last weekend in Tampa, Florida, and those words that you just cited, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, were the centerpiece of what I was saying. And I was trying to tell people, we think if Christianity's true, then why am I suffering? And my question I asked him was, you cannot define the gospel without talking about suffering. God never belittles suffering. God never says, you're not going to suffer anymore. God never says, I'm going to take it all away. Because if he did, why did his son have to suffer? So the question I was asking them was, do we deserve to suffer any less than Jesus Christ did? And the book of Hebrews, not only read the better known verse, tempted in all points like as we yet without sin, but just a chapter removed from that is the reference that Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. A truly amazing comet. He learned obedience by what he suffered. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To think that somehow uh, helped him to grow in some way. He learned it, learned obedience. I have to stop and wonder, who says I should get away from suffering? Do I deserve to suffer any less than my Lord? And so I think you're right that those passages on the cross, including it is finished, are just incredible, because nobody tries to sugarcoat that with Christianity. Gary, last Sunday, uh, we celebrated Palm Sunday, where the crowds or the masses were crying out, Hosanna! They saw the exalted one. Yet, John chapter 1, verse 11 says that he came to his own, and his own received him not. By later in the week, they had turned and said, release Barabbas! Let him suffer for what he's claiming to be. Gary, how could they have witnessed the Christ and rejected him? Tim, you folks at AACC, you folks understand this as well as anyone. So often in life, we do not make our most cherished decisions based on sheer evidence. We're not people who say, 
well, there's ten arguments for this, so I'm going to believe this. Usually, our first response is to respond emotionally. It's to respond with actions, which may or may not be God-honoring actions. And so many times, humans, they make their bed and they have to sleep in it, as the old phrase says. If we fall away from the Lord or sin or whatever we end up making God in our image. Well, all of a sudden, when that happens, God must be the kind of God, not the one I believed last week, but must be the kind of God who would allow my actions of this week. And we recast him in our own mind. Or our emotions, we go through some pain, and we get mad at him for allowing this or that. I think a lot of those responses are no different in the first century. They've responded to Jesus because for other reasons, you know, they're repulsed by him or whatever, or their leaders tell them they should be repulsed by him, and they respond without the full data. But it's really sad because we're human beings, and we respond with anything but our reasons sometimes. We go on how we feel, and it almost always gets us in trouble. Gary, sometimes pain also blinds our eye. We not only get angry, we just deny God. Tim, in a recent survey, I believe it was secular, one of the people groups that express the most anger toward God are atheists, 19%. And when people ask me about, you know, website XYZ and young people who believe this or that, or why are young people going here, I think a lot of it, it's an expression of an emotion. It's anger. It's upset. It's, well, if you're the God my parents believe in, why did I flunk this exam? Why did I have this car accident? Why did my girl or boyfriend break up with me? And we believe these things on God. But like I said a moment ago, you can't take suffering out of the Christian message. It's fully admitted. It's the heart of the Christian message, as well as God having an answer for this. Man, I mean, when Paul says, step back, let him that standeth take heed lest he fall, I just think we have to evaluate a little better. We all do it. We all go off. We all get emotional about everything. But for those who want to look, and see what the evidence says, I think it is so clear. The older I get, I'm more and more convinced that Christianity is true. Paul referred to himself as an apostle, Gary. That means he what? He saw the risen Christ? Right. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Philippians 3.10, then he makes this statement, Gary, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What does that mean for each and every one of us? <laughs> you know, Tim, that it's amazing we're talking about this. That same passage, Philippians 3.10, he goes on to say a few verses later that our citizenship is in heaven, it's not here on earth. But when he mentions that comment, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, right there in the exact same text, he says, that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. And you go, Paul, do you have issues or something? You want to know his power, but you also want to know his sufferings? And Paul, I think, had the right perspective. He realized that this life was not going to be exempt from suffering, but... He goes on to say that I may know the power of his resurrection. A couple of times Paul says that same resurrection power that raised Jesus is sufficient for us to break away from our sin, to live a powerful life. And somehow Paul wanted to experience that victory. And, and then again, he goes on to say just a few verses later, our citizenship is in heaven and Jesus will change our vile bodies to be likened to his glorious body. Paul looked ahead to that resurrection. Gary, the resurrected one, the Messiah, the Christ the Jesus that you know and love, would you close us out by encouraging us and challenging us to know him? For people who want evidence, it's there. There's more evidence for this event than about anything in religion. 
But for those who are more feelers, who just want to say, hey, I want a relationship, I want to know he's there, they could know him that way too. And I never argue with people who say, I don't need the evidence, I can just see the reality of my life. There's different strokes for different folks there. Jesus said, if you don't believe me for my word's sake, believe me for my work's sake. And works usually mean miracles. It's there. It's all things to all people. Paul says he became all things to all people. It's a, it's a great encouragement this time of year, like as if Jesus were coming from the tomb and extending his scarred hands wide and saying, I'm here, and wanting people to come to him. It may remind us of that verse in Luke where he tells us he weeps over Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I came to you like a mother hen tries to comfort her chicks and you would not. You wouldn't have anything to do with me. But he's still there, wounded, and now healed, and now raised, inviting us to come to himself, because whoever comes to Jesus is not cast out, John tells us. Gary, he is risen. He is risen indeed. The earth trembled, and the tomb began to shake. And like lightning from heaven, the stone was rolled away. John 19:11. but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I don't even know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't even know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi,
risen indeed. Life, love, and family.